Hi, I'm co-host Lois Donkwa, and this is the 100 Alumni Voices podcast, Stories That Inspire, where we explore the personal and professional journeys of a diverse group of 100 doctoral alumni from Johns Hopkins University. Today, we're joined by Jessica Albrin, EDD in Entrepreneurial Leadership and Education and current assistant professor at Lahore University of Management Services. Hi, Jessica. Hi. How are you today? Very good. Happy to be here. Thank you, Lois. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm glad to have you here. I'm excited to dive in and learn a little about you. So I think I first want to start by hearing about what made you interested in your doctoral program and doing entrepreneurial leadership in education and just what your graduate work and experience was like? Sure. Um, well, I, I came into graduate work late in life. Um, I was an international school teacher, so a teacher working in IB and American schools in different international settings across the world. So um, different areas of Africa and the Middle East, mostly. And as, you know, part of my professional development and work, I had done a master's at George Mason University in education leadership. And there, my professor really encouraged me to consider graduate studies. Um, I wanted originally to become a leader in international schools. And I saw a lot of leaders that became school heads, school principals, because they were well-connected or in the right place at the right time, rather than that they had the experience and the background to really understand uh, the needs of the community. And so I decided to continue my education with the intention of eventually becoming a leader in um, in international schools. That, that's not how my career worked out, but that was my original intention. That's so interesting. So I... What you do is completely different than how I understand things. So mm -hmm. I think I just overall have a lot of curiosity about the type of work you do and like how how you were drawn to that and then how you saw parts of that show up in the work that you did for your research. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was I grew up in a very small town in northern Nevada. And I always wanted to go and explore more and see more. Um, I felt it was a great community to grow up in. It was very supportive in a lot of ways. I have a lot of great memories of my childhood, but I also desperately wanted to see the world. Um, but financially, that just wasn't a possibility. So um, after I did my bachelor's degree, I joined the Peace Corps. And I was um, sent first to Togo, and then I, I got quite ill, and I had to be evacuated. And then I was sent to Gabon, also in West Africa. And I loved it. I had anticipated doing my two years um, of service, which Peace Corps service is typically two years. And within about three months, I knew that I was not going back. Um, <laughs> I, I knew I wasn't going back to the U.S. I wasn't sure what my life would look like, but I knew that I wasn't going back. So I was eager to explore the world some more. Um, and, you know, 
I fell into education by accident. There was a position open at the American International School of Libreville. And I was basically the the person with a degree that applied. They were pretty desperate for teachers. <laughs> um, I did not have an education background. Um, and from there, my my career grew in into that um, profession. I, I did get my qualifications. I am certif- a certified teacher um, and qualified now. Um, but it, the career started completely by accident and, um, just by serendipity, whatever kind of occurred to me there. And I loved wow. it. That's so, well, I think that a lot of our careers start by accident, even if it looks very planned. So, um, you're not <laughs> alone in that, but I think it's also, it's almost like a movie where you went to, um, you were in Togo, um, and then other places in West Africa for your Peace Corps time, but then you realized, I'm staying here. And I think that even if for some of us, it's not realizing, or maybe it's moving from the East Coast to the West Coast, or I guess in the Hopkins case, West Coast to the East Coast, or moving somewhere completely different and realizing your life is different than you imagined. And Mm -hmm. I'm curious what, what that was like for you, like in terms of how do, how do you, how did you manage recognizing like, oh, things are going to be different than how you planned. And then also how did that show up with how you approached your doctoral studies? Yeah. um, You know, I think part of the problem was that I didn't really know what I wanted to be when I grew up. I, I pursued an undergraduate degree in English and economics because I loved the subjects. Um, And I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, but I knew I wouldn't, nothing seemed like it was a fit for me. Um, you know, the, the typical career paths after that really didn't seem like what I wanted to do. And so once I got out there and was abroad and I realized that education was a career that I could go into and be international and have mobility and that I loved it. That was, I think, the big thing. Um, I tried teaching with the intention of seeing what, okay, let's see how this goes. Um, because it was never really a career consideration for me, but then I loved it. I loved it. I had a really supportive community, teaching community when I first started. And so it became something about which I was really passionate. And that ties into the doctoral studies because, you know, ultimately I I have a value system and my value system says that I have to contribute something to the world. And education was a great way to do that. You can really inspire people, change people's lives at a very basic level. Um, especially teaching kindergarten, which is where I started. And so, you know, now I see my students and they're graduating from university, those students that I taught, they're graduating from university and they're graduating from these prestigious places. And I'm like, I taught you to tie your shoes. right? <laughs> so it's a, it's a great career in that you can, for, for me, it was a great career because it aligned with my values um, and when I ultimately decided to go into my doctoral studies and what I did research, it also aligned with my values. And for me, I think a lot of my movements and my decisions have been very, very value driven. I understand that. I certainly view myself as someone who's both mission driven as well as value driven. Mm-hmm. So I understand how just a lot of the choices you're making through your work are are guided by that. And sometimes it's hard to explain what the motivation is because it feels innate to you. Um, yes. I'd love to hear a little bit about what, um, 
like what your studies and research, like what you did in that, knowing that it's, it's funny. Well, from my perspective, so as a PhD candidate, for me, it's like, I came with a topic idea that I wanted to dig into more. And then I was like, okay, like diving into this question more, but it's, it's not that that's not what you experienced, but it's also for you, it almost feels a little bit more applied. And I'm curious then I'm curious about what you did, but then also um, how does that influence what you're doing now? Yeah. Um, So when I applied for the program and EDD is different traditionally than a PhD because you are, the intention is that you are a practitioner scholar. And so um, you don't typically need to find a supervisor or um, it's usually self-funded as well. The EDD is typically self-funded. So therefore you apply for the program and I applied with an idea of what I wanted to do, but it's ultimately not what I did. Um, so what I researched was building data use practices to support the learning of culturally and linguistically diverse students. So data has typically been used to rank students, to exclude students from educational opportunities. I mean, if we think of the SATs, ACTs, uh, GREs, uh, other large scale exams, they basically determine somebody's educational future, right? So instead of using data in ways to rank and exclude children or um, in typically in the U.S., it's used for accountability measures. Um, instead of using data in this way, using data in a productive way to support children who normally feel marginalized and excluded in classrooms for various cultural and linguistic reasons or learning reasons. And this was really born out of my international school experience. Um, so currently I'm in Lahore. And 15 years ago, I was in Lahore as well. I was a teacher here at the American school and I came back here. I, I left and I came back and we were giving our students, I was teaching third grade and we were giving our students um, a standardized assessment to kind of understand the learning that, you know, that our students were experiencing, maybe where we needed to improve. But we gave students a, a standardized assessment from middle America, normed against middle class um, middle American students and it was completely inappropriate for them. So I remember watching my students take this, uh, this, this exam, this assessment. And there was questions like, um, identifying it was a vocabulary question where they had to identify a, a church steeple. And so you keep in mind we're in Pakistan and, um, there's no church steeple, or there was a really complex mathematics question or problem problem solving question that had a little girl taking a bus to go to the aquarium with her mother. Um, there are no aquariums in Lahore. There are no at that time there are no bus routes, and certainly my students weren't involved. They were using dollars in it. We use rupees here. The the entire problem, the ling- the linguistics behind the problem, they were just completely unsuited to our students. And the school got the results. And of course, it wasn't what they were expecting. And they're like, oh, we're not teaching right. We're not, the kids aren't learning right. You know, they were finding blame for it. And I was like, maybe the problem isn't um, what we're doing here in school or our students. Maybe it's the tools that we're using to assess them and and how we interpret it. Um, And so years later, that became the subject of my dissertation. That's so interesting. As um, So I appreciate that you did 
that um, as your research and you were motivated by diving into that more, because I'm certainly someone that um, historically has struggled with standardized tests. So I'm glad mm-hmm. that, um, yeah, I'm glad that there are people that are going, these tests aren't, aren't ideal. And even if you're smart there, <laughs> your brain just doesn't think like that. So Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Eventually my work went into um, you know, the dissertation focus, focus not necessarily on the creation of the assessment, but what you do with the data, what what teachers do with the data, how they work with it to inform their, their future planning. Um, um, but definitely there's a lot of work being done, um, especially in the American context in, in better developing assessments for uh, people who have diverse experiences and backgrounds. That's so cool. So I'm curious then, while you were in your program, um, did you know that you wanted to come back to Lahore or did you have thoughts about directions you wanted to go in and did you pivot later? I'm curious. (laughs) Well, um, I started wanting to be a leader in international schools and the international school experience and how you recruit for jobs, you know, you're, it's, it's not one link of of schools it's not like one company so you get contracts with various schools and you're expected to move around so I've moved around a lot it's not seen as a negative thing so I didn't really know where I would end up um, afterwards that wasn't the plan it was more the position that was the plan but then that changed part way through the program there were several um, social factors that that went into that change in um in my decision in terms of career. But Lahore, I always wanted to go back. Um, I'd lived in, let's see, I'd lived in for a sustained period of time, Gabon, Egypt, then I'd come to Pakistan. Um, and then I moved to Tanzania. Then I'd gone to Iraq and Oman. So Oman is where I was doing my degree. And of all the places that I had lived, Lahore was my favorite. So the opportunity to return was always on my mind. I understand that. I, I'm glad that you mentioned that for you, it wasn't necessarily a specific place, but you just knew what role you wanted mm-hmm. to be in after you finished. And I, I can even certainly identify with that too. And I'm sure that there are others who also, they don't necessarily know where in the States or the world they would want to live or where what company or organization or school that they would want to work in, but then Mm -hmm. they know what they want to be doing. And I'm curious then how you were able to deal with thinking through the reality that you only really cared about what you were doing, but knowing that you would have to pick where you were doing it. I, I know I struggle to be able to filter out how to (laughs) get beyond the, I know what I want to do, but I don't know where I want to do it. Mm -hmm. Well, so I'm fortunate in that I have plenty of experience with moving. Um, so um, I'm not necessarily attached to a certain place. There were lots of opportunities. I'm also extremely privileged. Um, I'm an American. Um, I carried a great degree from, from Johns Hopkins. I'm white. Uh, there's a lot of privilege in the educational space internationally for white Americans. So I've always had a lot of flexibility in that, in that way, um, where place wasn't really a concern. Um, again, that flexibility, that privilege led me to be able to choose more of my, a job based on my values rather than, um, the location or place or 
or even exactly the job title. When I eventually did pivot from school leadership to something else, I um, was also fortunate that my husband um, still maintained a job in the same school that I was working at before. And after I finished my doctorate, I could take off a year. And I took off a year and my do- I completed my doctorate during COVID. So it was an extremely stressful time. I was working full time, doing my doctorate um, in a full time program and doing it during COVID and teaching during COVID. So I was quite burned out. I was exhausted. I knew that I didn't want to continue in international schools. I didn't quite know what I wanted to do. So I was extremely fortunate that I could take a year off and still not have to suffer for it and um, take time to explore what I wanted um, and to really find the right position for both my husband and myself. Yeah. And for just a question. So for the time that you took off, was it something that like, that's what happens at the end of an EDD or it it was like a choice that you made for yourself? It was a choice I made. Yeah. Okay. And I'm glad that you mentioned that because it's so easy to forget that we can just choose to take a break. And just so it's not me stopping forever. And if you stop forever, there's something else you'll do. But it's it's so important to remember that we have to prioritize like our peace. And I'm Mm -hmm. glad that you mentioned that. And I I'm curious what advice you would have for people who have all of the things that they need to juggle and would be in situations like yours where it was like, I have to do this. I have to do this. I have to do this. And my dissertation, like what advice would you have? (laughs) Oh, that one's tough. (laughs) You know, I always tell people that this is one thing that I really learned. I think a lot of people learned in COVID is that the job really, jobs come and they go. (laughs) the work comes and goes um but if you're not healthy if your family is not healthy if the dynamic in your family is not healthy then um it's it's very hard to progress forward and so prioritizing those um they're essential and again i'm saying that from a place of privilege having the ability to stop and take time there are people who financially would not be able to do that um so i I say that with recognition that that's not always possible, but wherever it is possible to take those breaks when they're needed um, to reprioritize yourself and really understand where you want to go in the future. Yeah. That's such a, it's such an important thing. If you, if you have room in your life to do that, it's, Mm -hmm. if things don't need to be rushed, then it's fine for them not to be. Right. (laughs) I feel a lot of times like I'm really far behind because I I earned my doctorate. I was awarded my doctorate on my 40th birthday. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So when, when I think about and I look at my colleagues that are a similar age as me, they've been in this for, you know, 15, 20 years by now. And for me, I'm just starting my academic career. You know, fortunately, I have a very solid other career behind me that aligns with this and supports this. Um, but a lot of times I feel like I'm falling behind because I'm older and just starting off on this career. But ultimately, I'm just so happy with it that um, it's OK. <laughs> it's OK to take my time. Yeah. Yeah. And you you were reminding me that it's the it's a major thing that I've noticed just from doctoral studies is that you we're all on our own journey. So we aren't really 
benefiting ourselves by comparing ourselves to anyone in our cohort or anyone in a different doctoral program or people that came or finished before us. Like we have our own journeys. We have our own life circumstances that are influencing our journeys. Um, but you inherently do compare yourself sometimes. So it's important to always remind yourself like, no, <laughs> no, it doesn't need to be like that. I, you know, yeah. I'm very lucky. I had three very, very close friends growing up in this small town. Um, and all three of us became, uh, actually all four of us, because my three friends and myself um, earned our doctorates in all different areas. So one of my friends in social science, another in the hard sciences, and then another in the arts and the humanities. So my other friend in social science, she's a professor at University of Washington. And one of the things as I was looking for this and feeling all these insecurities, and I was thinking, what am I going to do? How am I going to make myself attractive to universities? She was like, look, academia is filled with weird people with weird interests. <laughs> She's like, if somebody's not interested in what you're doing, it has nothing to do with you. And it has everything to do with their own interests, their own agendas, because people are so into their little niche words. So she was like, don't worry about what anyone else is doing. You're your own expert in your own niche world. And you'll find the people that are really uh, focused in the same weird way that you are. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Filled with weird people with weird interests. It's yeah. it's a cute way of having you remember. That's true, actually. And it helps you not, not be as insecure about just it's I mean, we all want to be accepted. So I understand the fear, but it's it helps. That's I like that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You just have to find the weird people that match the weird. Right. Interests. Find your weird. Yeah. <laughs> So Definitely. I have one more question for you today, and I'm curious what inspires you right now. Um, you know, it's always been pretty much the same since I started education, and it's the students and the people that I work with and the communities with which I work. And um, just like the enormous potential that you have in a classroom or in a community or a school with which you work. So, you know, when I was teaching kindergarten, that enormous potential of those kids learning to tie their shoes and then graduating a few years later from McGill or Columbia or, you know, really great places and saying, okay, I contributed to that potential. Um, and then in this case, especially now in Lahore, um, you know, there's a lot of very, very negative impressions about Pakistan um, internationally and even in Pakistan in the community here. But my experience has been that there is just so much potential here. There are so many intelligent, hardworking, innovative, creative people here that are not getting the opportunities that they need. And so for me, it's really wonderful to be able to work with future educators and educational leaders here and help them determine their own country's potential. So especially, you know, considering the colonial past of, of Pakistan and Lahore, I don't want to come in as the white savior. I want to come in as somebody who helps um, the students here really tap into their own potential um, and their own community's potential um, in their growth and their, their possibilities that they have, because they certainly have all the human resources that are necessary to, to, to progress and move forward. Yeah, I love that. And I love, I mean, it makes sense. It goes back to what we were talking about in the beginning of our conversation, where you're mission-driven, value-based driven. It's, you're driven by the people that you're with and just wanting to work with to help um, 
continue to grow the community in different ways. So I understand that. I love that. Yeah. And they've given so much to me, honestly. Mm-hmm. I, I I absolutely love living here. I love the people here. It's it's I feel like my life is made very, very rich by the people I encounter here. Ah, that's so wonderful. Well, Jessica, it's been so wonderful to learn from you here a bit about your story and just what your doctoral experience was like. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for your time, Lois. I appreciate it.